So I want to spend about 20, 25 minutes with you this morning digging a little deeper into this study. This is the second part of our series on matters of conscience. We're going to spend, I know last week there was a mixed reaction uh, to, to the, uh, the message. I got everything from pastor that was very insightful and one of the you know, clearest explanations of this. And then the next person was, pastor, I love you. You completely lost me. I had no idea what you were talking about at all this morning. So I put that all on the teacher. So um, this, is, uh, this is a new area of study for me. And so I thought maybe this week I could simplify. I'm just, we're just going to go over four simple equations and two questions. Four equations, two questions. If you have your notes, pull them out. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, whether it's in hard copy or digital form, either is fine. I want to read three passages of Scripture that are all connected today. And then we're going to see what the Bible says about matters of conscience. Really, this, this, this whole series is about this. How do we make better decisions? How do we make better decisions? Because your decisions are the most critical component in determining the type of life that you live. And before you start putting me into the category of being, well, this sounds like motivational talk. Well, take it for, for whatever it is. This is what the Bible has to say to us. The Bible says your life is the sum of your choices and your circumstances. Circumstances are up to God. Choices are up to me. So choices are important. Every single choice that you make, if it's going to impact your life, uh, or every single choice that you make has an impact on your life. And so we think that it's wise if we're going to be good disciples. A good disciple probably makes good choices. We probably decide differently than people who aren't disciples. So we're digging into that in this series called Matters of Conscience. Three passages we want to read this morning together. When I say together, I'll read them out loud. You can listen. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Um, and we'll be re- starting in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. We're going to be doing a whole series on Proverbs throughout the summer, taking a chapter a week, giving you, if you'd like to read through Proverbs with us over the summer, um, we'll be give- putting a reading plan in your hand that we can all be kind of reading through, thinking through Proverbs together. So if you're not, uh, if reading the Bible and studying the Bible isn't part of your spiritual growth plan, it should be. Uh, we encourage you to, to get on a reading plan, but a great place to start is Proverbs, okay? Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. Great sentence. Fools think their own way is right, (laughs) but the wise listen to others. And I see wives elbowing their husbands all over the room. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, a very interesting verse about conscience. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. That says to us that even if your conscience is clear, that does not necessarily mean that, the ab- that there is sin absent from your life. What it means is that even a clear conscience, as much as we trust it to guide us to right and wrong, sometimes lies to us. He says, my conscience is clear. That doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. What Paul is saying is that there is something that trumps even your conscience, and that is the Lord himself. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, is the strategy for all of us who choose to make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, this is how we really change. What it says is we need to be changed. And the moment that I put my faith in Jesus Christ and repent of my sins, it doesn't mean that in that moment I'm completely perfect. It still means I'm broken and flawed and there's work to be done. And here's the work. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you. In other words, you don't have to transform yourself. Praise Jesus. God doesn't say, all right, you're saved. Now fix yourself. He says, let me do this, cooperate with me, submit to me, let me transform you into a new person, and here's how God does it. This is fun. By changing the way you think. In other words, what God is saying is, we don't think properly by his standards. And most of the tension I've encountered as a pastor trying to disciple people boils down to this. 
We don't like when our faith wants us to think a way other than the way we already think. About everything. We like when faith lines up with what we already think. And we adopt those parts readily. Then we reject the parts of what the Bible says that we don't agree with or that we don't like. Or that says, this is what the Bible says about finances. This is what the Bible says about marriage. This is what the Bible says about sex. This is what the Bible says about diet. This is what the Bible says about conversations. This is what the Bible says about alcohol. This is what the Bible says about, about treating other people and hospitality and sharing your faith and, and the people that do you wrong. We reject the parts that come in conflict with what we already think. But the good news and the challenge is, if we want to be disciples, we have to allow God to transform the way that we think. Because our thoughts drive our decisions and our decisions drive our lives. And so really getting down to the root of it, it's not just about, it's not just about simply a, a, a change in title. It's about a whole change in thought process. And then you'll learn how to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Here's a review from last week. I know we're kind of in graduation, vacation season. I stop going on Facebook on Fridays every week as a pastor. It depresses me because I see pictures of everybody all over the world from my church who are telling us I'm not going to be in church on Sunday. Look how much fun I'm having. So have fun. That's fine. We love it because in July, I'm taking a vacation too. And I want you to be happy for me. Okay, you know, I'm going to, vacation is different when you have kids. It's not going to involve rest and relaxation. I named my son Chase and I pay for it every year on vacation. But I want to review from last week. I will tell you, I can't, I'm going to resist the urge to go deep into this, which is hard for me to do. I realize I'm usually the most passionate person about this in the room, and I don't want to pass that on top of you. But at the same time, this is important because these are foundational. I will tell you the podcast from last week is up and live. And if any of this you need more, there was plenty, probably too much, but there was plenty last week to go on. So these are in your notes. You can just follow along with me. Here's four life equations that we, we're taking some things the Bible teaches and just expressing it in my love language, which is mathematics, okay? First one, choices plus circumstances equals life. My life is the sum of what I can control. Those are my choices. And what I can't control, those are my circumstances. My choices are critical to determining the quality of my life. If you hear nothing else from me this morning, hear this. If you want a better life than what you've got, make better decisions. Did you hear me? If you want a better life, make better decisions. And the thinkers in the room say, well, who decides what's better? Who defines what means better? Follow along. (laughs) We'll talk about that. This also says what is preventing you from experiencing a more desirable quality of life is not your circumstances, it's your choices. A lot of us think I would have a better life if I could just fall in love. My life would be better if my kid would just be potty trained. My life would be better if I just got paid more. My life would be better if I would have just been born into this family because there's money in that family and I wouldn't have to work so hard. My life would just be better if I could have kids. My life would just be better if I could get rid of my kids. My life would just, it's all about circumstances is where we usually go. Circumstances are largely not our control. That's up to God. You didn't decide what century you'd be born in. You didn't decide what family you'd be born into. You didn't pick your name. You might think differently if God decided you'd be born in the dark ages in the middle of Siberia. But see, a lot of us think we're responsible for our circumstances. And then we spend our life trying to manipulate our circumstances. When God is saying, leave me the responsibility of circumstances 
and you take on responsibility for your choices, and I'll help you make better choices. What's preventing you from living the desirable life that you want is not your circumstances. It's your choices. Well, I don't like my circumstances. You don't pick those, but you pick your response to your circumstances. I've been walking closely with Moses and Lauren. There are some circumstances in their life they're not happy about. But I tell you, you walk close to them for 10 seconds and watch how they've chosen to respond to their circumstances. Even though they're broken, they worship God. Even though they don't like the results, they praise his name and they walk close to him. If they can do it. If Jesus could be torn limb from limb and forgive the people for murdering him while they were murdering him, you and I can learn to make better choices. Amen? Amen. It's lifted out of the Bible, Matthew chapter 7, the parable of the two builders. Jesus said, everybody has to build a house. Everybody's house is going to have to face floods, storms, rain, and wind. Those are circumstances. What made one builder wise and the other one was foolish was the choice of foundation. Your choices, not your circumstances, are the things you can control and point you in the direction of a better life. Equation number two, our choices fall into one of four categories. Your choices equal your right choices plus your wrong choices plus your wise choices plus your foolish choices. I realize that not every single decision you make is life impacting. The brown shoes versus the black shoes, I don't know that that's going to... Some of you, that is a big deal. Maybe too big of a deal. I recognize there's some decisions that don't impact your life. What we're saying is every life-impacting decision fits in at least one of those categories. It's either right or it's wrong. It's either wise or it's foolish. If it's right, it's also wise. Okay? Some of them fit into more than one category. But the Word tells us over and over and over again that the choices you make are either right or they're wrong. They're either wise or they're foolish. Well, who decides? That goes to our next equation. Right choices plus wise choices, we believe, equals conscience minus guilt. And I spent a lot of time on this last week. The human heart agrees on this equation. You came wired by God to kind of live this way. The way most of you conclude that you made a good choice is if your conscience doesn't bother you. The way most of us conclude that choice was wise is if I say I have a clear conscience. I don't feel guilty. I don't feel hesitation. I don't feel uneasiness. I don't feel like I violated any internal moral principle. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25, kind of says this. Most of us come out of the womb, all of us come out of the womb, wired to say right choices and wise choices are those things which seem right to me. Those things which don't seem to make me feel guilty. Proverbs says there is a way, actually Proverbs says there's a path which seems right to everybody, but it ends in death. In other words, there's probably a second way that you can process through this. You can either say, I am the one and my conscience is the one that decides what's right and what's right. Or maybe there's something that trumps even my conscience. This works if your conscience is perfectly calibrated to the Holy Spirit. If your conscience, in fact, we looked at last week in Romans chapter 2 where Paul says, There's a group of people called the Gentiles who never read the Bible, yet they live moral lives. How did that happen? He says they instinctively obeyed the word of God, which was written on their heart. In other words, God created us out of the factory with a heart that was initially calibrated to his word. But the problem is our conscience drifts all the time. 
and it lies to us. Our conscience is not inerrant. Some of us have a broken conscience. So let's go to the fourth equation. The desirable life, the life that most of us are seeking is this. A life where we are free to make whatever choices feel right, whatever choices feel wise, without feeling guilty for any of it. That's the life most of us are seeking for. A life where we feel freedom to live, to choose, to do what seems right, what seems pleasurable, what seems wise, without feeling any guilt. The life we all want is to make those choices. The problem is that the conscience that God gave me is not inerrant. It doesn't work perfectly and absolutely. It drifts constantly. My drifting conscience becomes one of two things. Here's how you know if your conscience isn't working right. It either becomes too sensitive, which means I have guilty feeling, feelings that are not supported by guilty facts. Why do you feel so guilty that you ate a piece of chocolate cake? Is that a sin? Some of you have elevated it to that point. It's an indication your conscience is too sensitive. Or your conscience can get flawed by saying it's not sensitive enough. That says I am the fact of my life is that I'm guilty in some areas, but I have no guilty feelings. The result is that I become delusional. I live with less guilt than I should, which means I'm self-righteous. Or I live with more guilt than I should, which means I hate myself. The solution to all this is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and accepting two facts simultaneously. I accept that I am more guilty than I can ever fully understand, and simultaneously I am loved and accepted more than I ever dared to believe through Jesus Christ. That's the solution. So with that as our foundation, I want to start applying what we're learning about the relationship between our conscience and our choices. Since our conscience, the Bible says, is the driving force behind our choices, and our choices are the controllable part of living the life that God wants me to live, the choices that I make are of critical importance. So the big idea is this. Most people, most people, conform their faith to their conscience. You all right, Dave? Okay, just making sure. I think that was a good noise. Most people conform their faith to their conscience. If you think about a mold and pouring liquid plastic inside of it, most people start with their conscience as the mold, and they take, their, they take faith or religion, and they pour it inside the mold of their conscience, and they want their faith to fit inside of their conscience. True disciples conform their conscience to their faith. The way most of us approach faith, you can look on here on board. If you like to draw, draw a big circle on your paper. Okay, draw a circle. And I put these little segments on here because I want you to pretend that this is a big enclosure. It's a circular fence and it has fence posts all around it, okay? Some people, all of us live to a degree, all of us live with a fence in our life. I'm just going to tell you, it's, it generally falls in one of two categories. For most people, the fence is the fence of conscience. Okay, conscience. Most of us call this fence the conscience, and we live in such a way that you've used this phrase, we don't want to cross any lines. You have lines in your life. And most people say, this fence I try and live inside of is my conscience. My conscience has different lines I don't want to cross. And the way that I live a desirable life is I try and make decisions that all fit inside my conscience because if that happens, my conscience is clear and there's nothing better than a clear conscience. And if I violate my conscience, then I feel guilty. 
And there's nothing worse than feeling guilty. So most people live their whole life making decisions to fit inside the fence of their conscience. And then what happens is somewhere along the line, they consider this idea of faith. They consider this idea of truth. They consider this idea of the Bible. And they say this, I will accept any faith so long as it fits inside of my conscience. And the moment that any religion, any pastor, any preacher, any Christian suggests something to me that challenges one of my fence posts, I'm going to make that faith fit inside of here or I'll reject it altogether. Christians, on the other hand, true disciples of Jesus, we also live inside of a fence. That fence is called the fence of faith. Or you can call it the fence of God's favor. These fence posts are found inside of this. This is the Bible. And if you're a true disciple of Jesus, I promise you, it began with you praying a prayer. You said something to the effect of, Jesus, I confess that you are Lord. I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. You confessed, you acknowledged, you surrendered to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and we are not. You said to him, I want to be in relationship with you. And in order to do so, I accept total leadership, absolute authority from you. That means you and I don't argue and discuss the fence. Whatever fence that you have established, Jesus, you're the Lord. I'm not. And I will live inside of your fence. And I will learn by studying your word because we believe the Bible trumps everything. It is the ultimate authority for life for ethics, for practical decisions. And people who look at it this way say, this is the fence of faith. And I'm going ins- to, it started the whole way back in the Old Testament. Read Leviticus. That's God setting up his fence. Read Numbers. That's when they decided which fences they liked and which they didn't, and they fell into problems. Then they had Deuteronomy. God reestablished the fence and gave them a do-over. That's a flyover of the Old Testament real quick, those first couple books. So this is, this is where we try to live. And how do we know, how do we know what the fence is? We study his word. We walk in community. We come to church. We listen to teaching. We listen to the Holy Spirit inside of us. And what we say is this. When my conscience and my faith bump into each other, that means either the Bible tells me to start doing something I'm not naturally doing or to stop doing something I want to do. I fit my conscience inside of my faith and say to my conscience, then you need to be calibrated to Jesus by changing the way that I think. This is how this whole uh, fence things works. All of us want to live inside the fence. And what's inside God's fence? Inside the fence of faith is blessing, is favor, is life, is peace. Outside the fence is cursing and death and judgment. And guess what? Anxiety and guilt Inside the fence, there's no guilt. There's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Outside the fence, all you've got is self-medication. You have to anesthetize the guilt you can't get rid of. Inside the fence. I want to tell you, for sake of time, man, I'm going to have to fly. My son would be really impressed if I could actually do that, but I can't really fly. This is the fence of obedience. And what I'm driving at this morning is if you want to make better decisions, the first question you need to ask is this. What is the blessable choice? What is the blessable choice? 
the first question we don't need to ask is, what seems right to me here? What feels right to me? The first question, whenever you're making a decision, is, is, can God bless it? What does the Word have to say? What does God have to say about this decision that I'm facing? That's the first question. Jesus says this in John chapter 14. If you love me, obey my commandments. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Listen to me. Obedience is God's love language. You will not see obedience and love separated in the Scripture. You will always find them together. If you love God, you live inside the fence. If you decide that your conscience trumps your faith, and that you only live inside of the fence posts that you agree with, what it says is it's a deficiency in the love you have for God. If you love him, you will obey him. One of the bedrock, non-negotiable conditions of salvation is to confess and voluntarily submit to the lordship, the absolute leadership of Jesus Christ. This means when you get saved, you have to say, I'm going to exchange this fence for this one. Listen, if you want to be saved, You cannot come to God on your terms. You cannot say, I accept the fence of holiness. I accept the fence of talking nice to people. I reject the offense of God gets to assign my gender. I reject the offense of first fruits belong to God. And I'm going to live inside this fence because that's the God that makes me feel good. That's not lordship. Plain and simple. If you come to God, you don't get to pick and choose the fence. You say, you're Lord. Well, pastor, I'm not sure that I agree. Then all I ask is that you stop pretending that you're in right relationship with God because you don't have a God, you have a genie. You have a bellhop. You have a mascot. You pull him out when you need to feel good and you push him back down the tunnel when he challenges your thinking. You cannot accept salvation and reject lordship. You can't have both. Well, pastor, that's hard. I love you. I don't want you to be one of those people that shows up and say, God, I thought I was saved, and now I'm finding out I'm not. Listen, that doesn't mean that we're, well, how can anybody meet that standard? (laughs) Well, here's the trick. We can't meet that standard. That's why we have Jesus. Your good choices don't save you. Your good choices don't keep you saved. Jesus does. All he asks is that you accept his lordship. And if he's in us, he's incrementally, day by day, helping us. Is every choice a Christian makes right? No. But my bad choices don't forfeit my salvation. Unless I decide he's no longer my Lord, now we've got a problem. What happens when I disobey the Lord? I immediately cut my senses. I ask him to forgive me, and he does. That's how that works. In other words, let God transform. You don't have to transform yourself. But if you're saying that I, I, I want a relationship with God, why well, pick and choose the fences? Friend, you're just taking your faith and trying to fit it inside your conscience. That's not sufficient to save you. What I'm driving is that, that is that for the true Christian, decisions and choices begin with asking the question, what is the path before me that God can bless? If he can't pl- bless it, I won't choose it. Where God has already spoken to us, where he's already established a fence in his word, we don't dare question him. And here's the two problems. This brings up two problems. First problem this is the thinking that says, well, it's the fence that saves me. Some of you may be infected with this thinking. You look at the fence as your salvation. As long as I obey the rules, God must love me more. I pay the rent. I pay my tithes. I serve. I go to church. 
I try to do right. That's what makes me saved. And you get mad at people who God saves and you see imperfections in their life. First of all, friend, the fence does not save you. The fence did not die for you. That's called legalism. Legalism says it's not about relationship, it's about rules. And here's the news. Even if you follow those rules perfectly, if it were possible and it's not, that's not sufficient to save you, the Bible says. None of us can follow it perfectly. Your only hope is for Christ to be in you and you to be in Christ. That's it. So those of you that think the fence saves you, let me unburden you this morning. The fence doesn't save you. But out of the love that I have for God and out of how delightful I'm finding living inside the fence, why would I want to hop over it? It's great in here. And what we'll teach you is that the real estate inside here is a whole lot bigger than many of you are comfortable with. Because inside of this fence is something also called liberty, freedom, permission, preference. In other words, there's lots of real estate. This bothers some conservatives in the room who think that the space inside the fence is this big. This is the perfect will of God. As long as you're inside this circle, you have permission to choose. And in fact, you also have permission to tell people who think that they know better than you, who are criticizing you for setting up camp over here, to step off. (laughs) Still love me? That's all next week is about, so just bring your tape recorders. And I'll skip ahead because also inside of here is grace. If you want to wear this pair of pants and you want to wear this pair of pants, you can. Yay. Any pair of pants? Well, we do have the fence of modesty. We do have the fence of not being greedy and not spending money we don't have to impress people we don't like, right? But we have grace. Isn't that lovely? Here's what grace isn't. Some of you think this is what grace means. You think grace means no fence. I'm saved. I got this awesome laminated card from God called grace. And it gives me all access to everything, no fences. Paul says, do you think that when you get saved, that's permission to sin more so you can have more grace? God forbid. But you see, God wants you to live inside his fence so he can. This is where the blessing, the favor, the life, the peace are. So the first problem is the fence saves me. The second problem is what I call the hybrid fence approach. The hybrid fence approach, which means this. You say, I like this fence right here because I already thought that. No problem there. I agree with God on that one. I like this fence here because that doesn't make me have to change anything. I was already a pretty kind person. This fence over here, when the pastor starts talking about tithes and first fruits, I see that differently. Because you see, you know, we're building, we're building a new building. We're buying a new boat. Um, I'm in debt. I made some bad financial decisions. Or I make a lot of money. And 10%'s a lot. So the way I think is that if giving money for me is hard, you know, then that can belong to me. Maybe I'll just give my time. I hear that all the time. Well, I guess if giving is hard and I can't do it cheerfully, then maybe God doesn't want for me to give. I'll let the people who God gifts to give, give. No, see, what you want is you want a fence that says you have ownership. It all belongs to me. And out of the goodness of my heart, I will make some donations to God when I'm sufficiently moved. And then God will heart me more. Or heart plus in emoticon language. The problem with this is that it is foundationally false and backwards. The problem with this is that it suggests that everything you have belongs to you and you made a way for yourself, which flies in the face of theism and flies in the face of the Bible. 
Well, pastor, if you really understood the New Testament, well, let's go there then this morning. You'll be all right. (laughs) Well, pastor, that was an agricultural society. The New Testament, you know, the New Testament never specifies, you know, 10%, 9%, 8%. I just really think it should be after. Listen, you're right. It was an agricultural society that they were writing to. And you know the hang up that they didn't have that we have? God said, who gave you that field? Did you make the dirt? Obviously not. No one would dare take credit for dirt, but we will take credit for degrees. We will take credit for our work ethic. We will take credit for our talents and our abilities. He said, who gave you the dirt? Well, you did. Thank you, God, for giving us the dirt. Who gave you the seed? And even the smart people couldn't figure out where that came from. Had to be God. So God says, I'll give you the dirt. I'll give you the seed. All I ask is that you, to remind you, to remind you who gave it to you, I ask you to return, not to be generous, not to donate, to return a portion of what I gave you because it all came from me. And nobody in their right mind who drives a company car thinks they go to the person who paid for the car and says, here's how I'm going to treat your car. You say, thank you for letting me drive this car. You want me to put gas in? I'll put gas in. You want me to vacuum it? Thank you for letting me drive a car I didn't have to pay for. What God says to us in this society is, who gave you your dirt? Who gave you your seed? Well, I got it all myself. What if he put you in the dark ages in Siberia? How would you feel about your brain today? One wave of his finger, you grow up in an orphanage in Haiti. Then where's all your talent? You know how much of your circumstances you really had something to do with? Well, pastor, that's easy for you to say. You think it's easy for me to write out 10% of what I make every month and give it back? You think that's simple? You think I live in some different economic universe than you do? I've got a house I can't live in right now. I've got $53,000 of invoices sitting. I don't have $53,000 in my checking account. I'm hoping my insurance company pays before it starts accruing interest. You think it's easy for me? Well, Pastor, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, and if I can't be cheerful, I shouldn't give. Let me break that down for you this morning. You think that means God doesn't love non-cheerful givers? Hello? Well, Pastor, I can't give cheerfully. Friends, sometimes you've got to give to get to cheerful. My son doesn't like to share. You think I'm just going to wait till he wakes up one morning and teach him? Well, son, I'll just wait till you feel good about doing it. And that's back out here. I only want to do what I feel good about. Well, Pastor, why do you write those checks out? You know why? Because I am blessed. You know why? I'm blessed. I've got my health. I've got my family. I've got a roof over my head. I can go out to a restaurant today and drink as much clean water as I want. Oh, so that's, that's why you give. Because God, I don't, you have those. Some people say, well, I have all those things because I tithe. I have all those things because I give to the, no, 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 no. I give because I love God. I don't give because he gave me. I don't give in order to get from him. I've already gotten I recognize everything I have comes from him. Everything I got comes from him. I'm okay with this fence. Is it easy always? No. But you know what I love in here? I can go back out here to ownership or I can go in here to responsibility and stewardship. Well, pastor, what should I do with everything that I'm hearing this morning? 10%. Listen, the Bible teaches proportional giving. That's the fence. For some of you, 10% is way too much. For some of you, 10% is way too little. That's not my issue. What's the first What's the first fruit that you are willing and able to give to God? The principle is what he's after. That you recognize that every time something comes in, that came from God. 
And then it's not mine to own, it's mine to steward. And I want to make wise decisions. And the offense the Bible says is that the wisest decision of all those is to begin with giving the first fruit back to God. 10% is a great benchmark to look at, but I don't want to be too legalistic with it. I'm more concerned that you live inside of the fence, not because I benefit personally from it, because candidly with you, that's not how I, I don't. I don't. I want you to be able to live inside of here. I want you to be able to live where there's blessing and where there's favor. And part of the blessing isn't that you get 100% return on every dollar you put in the offering. The blessing is that you get to live in the grace and the freedom and the liberty of Christ. You get to experience the joy of being part of everything that God does. And the other thing is, I need to prepare you for, I'll just land here, we'll pick up here next week. I'll just end here. I don't bother some of you. Oh, I'll give you the last blank because some of you will like really... What is the wise choice? That's, next week's whole message is called the wise choice. Okay, There's your two questions. Here's the reality as our, as our team comes because now this is so hieroglyphic you can't tell what any of that actually means. Brian, would you mind just putting this over to the side? Yeah, sure. I used purple today because that was the marker that I had. The challenge that we have, especially when it comes to matters of finance, there's so many things I could pull out. I don't know why I'm picking on finance this morning. The reality is we need God to help us make blessable choices. Choices that he can honor. Choices that leave us without struggling for, for, for feeling so incredibly guilty. And pressured. We're having to find and navigate our way through life on our own. The first question to ask is, what is the blessable path for me to go down? Next week we'll talk about this. The, the reality is, is that um, there are matters in life that the Bible hasn't spoken specifically about. And then the question is, if the blessable choice doesn't answer it for you, you have to ask, what is the wise choice? Pastor, how can I possibly... I want to live that way, Pastor. How can I possibly be familiar with every single fence post inside of the Word? Well, friend, that's a journey. That's what we have Jesus for. That's what you have your church for. That's what you have the Holy Spirit for. It does begin with daily studying the Word. Like I said, I I don't want to shortcut around this. If you study the Word, you will make better choices. If you'll discipline yourself to, to getting into the Bible and seeing the gold that's in there, if you'll read it, if you'll study it, if you'll memorize it, If you'll come to church regularly, we'll always teach out of the Bible. We'll help you. There are people in this room through your growth groups and different leaders here. You can always ask, well, what what is somebody that I look at to in my life as a spiritual mentor? Someone who maybe is more advanced in their understanding of the Bible than me. Maybe I have a decision I'm wrestling with. I need to go to them and I need to ask them, you know, what is the right thing for me to do? If you're new to your faith, I know it can be intimidating. We have this awesome thing the Bible says. The moment you are saved, the Bible says your spirit, the party that lives forever, is fused together with God's spirit and the two become one. Here's the beautiful thing of God's mercy. The moment that you're saved, you have living inside of you the spirit of God himself. And he helps guide our thoughts. He helps guide our decisions. Sometimes you might be getting ready to do something wrong and you have a sense of uneasiness. Your conscience is already bothering you. You feel you're up against the line. You're up against a fence post and you yield and listen to the Holy Spirit inside of you. Listen to it because you have two choices when the Holy Spirit starts working on your heart. 
You listen to him or you have to ignore him. Your heart either gets softer or it gets harder. I don't want you to live with a hardened heart. That's how our conscience gets seared. That's how you and I can do all kinds of things that aren't right or aren't wrong. The Bible is very clear that all of us get going down this path of living life that feels right and natural for me. I, oh man, I can't open that can this morning. I'll have to wait till next week. But I have, I'm very clear on what the Bible says about, you know, we, we talk a lot about the LGBTQ movement and this agenda and, and people's determination of their sexuality and their, their attraction and their gender identification. And, um, you know, I get hammered a lot because they, people feel like I don't talk enough about it in church. And, um, you know, the good news is that I don't rely on people to tell me what I should talk about in church. I listen to the Holy Spirit and I follow that because that's what I'll answer to. At the same time, you know, I, I've always been very clear. The Bible is very clear. God assigns gender, and I trust God's decision-making process. He created them man, created them woman. God defines marriage. For this reason, a husband <laughs> and a wife will leave their parents, and they will cleave to one another. There is no other example of it in the Bible. In fact, the Bible also says to go beyond that is to reject God's assignment of those things. And the Bible is very clear about what's right and what's wrong, what's sin and what isn't. Where I land as a Christian, though, as I say, I have deep love for the LGBTQ community. I'm sorry if that bothers you. I'm not apologizing for that. And whether you realize it or not, this church has a very meaningful ministry into that community. And I've taken time and I've actually listened to many people's stories about how they are in the place that they are right now in terms of, you know, where we would differ is this when You know, we can sit down and say, I believe God assigns those things. And I've listened to people say, well, they believe it's an issue for their own discovery. And that's what a lot of our children are being taught. Your sexuality, your identification is for your own discovery. And it really goes back to that circle that we put on the board. All of us naturally drift in this way. What seems right for me? What seems natural to me? And once you get so far down that, you come and you start concluding. And that fence gets so galvanized in your mind. I've listened to these journeys. A lot of people said, I tried earlier on to fit into what I was assigned. And they'll even say many times, some of my friends will say, and I felt so guilty that I couldn't fit in. There was guilt already there. And at some point they said, I just gave in and concluded, I must naturally be, I must be naturally be a woman who identifies as a man or a man who identifies as a man attracted to other men. And somewhere along the line, they decided life has to fit inside of my conscience. And my conscience says this must be right. And I reject anything that challenges otherwise. Friends, whether you're heterosexual, homosexual, LG, wherever you are on the spectrum, the condition of our heart is still the same. And I will say this. If you hear the gospel carefully, the central issue to determining my salvation is not my sexuality. It's not my identification of what gender. It is lordship of Jesus Christ and my willingness to surrender to it. All those other things fall underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. The most key, you know, when I get to heaven, it's not going to be an issue when I stand before Jesus. He's not going to ask me which party I affiliate with or which. That's not going to be what puts me in the book or not. What puts me in his book is who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Have you accepted his lordship? Is, there, is the evidence of that in place in your life? How can you begin to help someone who has concluded that they are other than how God assigned them? How can you begin to help them understand how to... <laughs> how to go back into those issues and listen to their faith if they don't have a relationship with Jesus. So I don't feel like I need to spend a lot of time in the pulpit hammering what's right and what's wrong. I'll be as clear as I need to be. I think I'm being very, very clear about what the Bible says. God assigns us a gender. 
He has signs. He defines what marriage is. He defines what is right. He clearly says in Romans, the way people have always been pushing back at that, and at some point God gave them over to that, and that's not the path that he blesses. At the same time, the pathway back is not just saying, you have to change all those things for Jesus to love you. The path is find Jesus, and he'll help you find your identity. That's the message I want to get clear. And I realize that you all have your platforms on social media and you can use those however you want to use them. I answer to a much higher power for everything that I say. And every time I do say something, I get clobbered publicly for it. I'm not embarrassed about that, but have enough respect for the position that I have to have to say those things. There's more writing on it for me. And I want to be very clear and not get carved up in sound bites. This church loves, loves the LGBTQ community. We love you. God loves you. He wants to have relationship with you. But it only comes through surrendering to his lordship and saying, I'm going to trust your definition. And where it butts up against with what I've concluded to be true, I'm going to come to you and I need your help to transform the way that I think. And before you type anything out, hatred-wise, are you willing to walk with someone who says, I need your help to walk me through this? That's what Christ does. That's what we do. We're not making wrong right and right wrong. But love trumps all. And that's where it begins. Friend, that might not be your issue today, but you're in a wrong way. You're in a wrong pattern. There's wrong thinking. The only hope for you is Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know that I have the power to change my thinking. You don't have to get cleaned up for him to love you. You come to him and you submit to him. He'll clean you up. He'll straighten you out. You can come into this community. This is a safe place. We're willing to roll up our sleeves and walk alongside people who are recovering from messes because I am the chief mess maker. Some of you are here on Easter. That is my, I'm the chief mess maker. Let's pray this morning. If you're here today and you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, can I invite you to pray along with me? If you want to give your life to Jesus, you want to give your life back to Jesus, here's the prayer to pray. You can pray it right in your seat. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are the son of God. I believe you lived the life I should have lived. You died the death I deserved to die. And you're alive today. I believe I need you. Because I am broken. I have fallen short of the standard and the example that you set. So I confess that you are Lord. I make you my absolute leader and I get off the throne of my own life and I put you in that place and I will follow your leadership absolutely and unquestioningly. Forgive me of my sins, which are many. And I thank you that now you're washing them over and you hold them against me no more. Remove from me all of the weight of my guilt and let me find freedom and peace through a relationship with you. Thank you for saving me. Amen.